So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gert Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. So what I really love about this week's guest, Sarah Spear Selber, is that she taps into one very core question that I and many others, I'm sure, have had for a long time now, and that is, what is this educational path of ours, a path that starts so early on in our lives? What is that path really all about? If you think about it, we go to school, we get an education, and then all too many of us find ourselves spit out in the workforce working away, which to me has always begged one simple question. Why? Why do we actually do that? And why would we actually do that to ourselves? And it's certainly a question I'm asking myself today as a parent to what end am I actually encouraging my son to go through his educational journey? What is it that I'm telling him is awaiting him at the end of his path? For Sarah, the answer to that question came pretty early on, and it's an inspiring one. Her purpose was not simply to make a living, it was to make a life. And what became clear to me as I was listening to Sarah's journey was that the way she was going about making a life was by mothering it every aspect of it, from her children, to her clients, to her colleagues, to everyone else around her, Sarah fundamentally expresses herself as a mother. And that, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So without further ado, I give you Sarah Spear Selber. Firstly, thank you for agreeing to share your journey. Yeah, it's been a fun one. So let's get started. Question number one, Sarah, do you ever think about the concept of purpose or mission or what it is I'm doing here on this planet? Every day, all day long. Yeah. Where are you netting out? I, I feel pretty good. I really do. I, I feel like um, between my ears are kind of now matching more and more every day my actions. Is that how you're defining this idea of purpose for yourself? Well, for me, I think purpose is trying to quiet that voice of ego and let that voice of how is this going to affect a greater good overtake everything in a moment. Because in a moment, we're so reactionary And I guess with age and time and experience, I'm learning to just exhale before I create or do. Yeah. And Sarah, when when would you say you first sort of realized that, that that is sort of the the purpose of your existence? Oh, wow. You know, I think I was very young. Um, I came from a family, a very large, large family. So I really grew up with a lot of cousins and older aunts and uncles. And my parents were exceptional about making sure 
we really did cultivate those relationships. Yep. That was the great news. The bad news was at a rather young age, I saw a lot of death, a lot of tragedy. Um, and, and I think it just was a, such an imprint on, on my future. I had no idea. Um, even at the time that it was happening, at 15, 16, um, due to some abnormal family dynamics, which later in life I came to find out was really quite normal. We just didn't talk about it at the time. Yep. I went away to boarding school. And that was the first time in my life where I was different. I was the only Jewish kid pretty much in this predominantly very wealthy um, girl school. Yep. And I was a jock and an athlete and, you know, smart, and that just wasn't really okay in the neighborhood where I grew up. You know, you kind of, I was kind of groomed to be a little princess. But I got to this boarding school, and the first speaker was Gloria Steinem. Amazing. It, which, right, it, I think it stunned me more than anyone else, because everyone else had been in that environment for so long. But it was kind of the first time in my life I heard purpose, it's okay to be strong, it's okay to give back, you don't have to just make money, you can make a life. Yep. And it stuck. It uh, stuck with me. It stuck so much that I went to Tulane for Newcomb College of Tulane, played tennis for them, and there was just always something in me throughout those four years that said, the classrooms are great, but you're going to learn a lot more on the street. Yep. You're going to find out so much more about life. And I think it was those kinds of experiences, including being held up at gunpoint, that really shaped and formulated my path forward. When were you held up in gunpoint? So I was a junior in college and had borrowed a friend's car. It was about three in the morning. And, you know, it happens at college at three in the morning in 1970-something. <laughs> we were hungry. <laughs> so I went to a very interesting part of New Orleans, and we went into our Popeyes to get our chicken, and we came out, and a man with a gun, shoved the passenger, my friend, into the dashboard, got in the back seat of the car and put a gun at the back of my head and said, drive, I'm going to rape and kill you. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I was taking a class at the time, Philosophy of the Self, and I'm pretty sure it was about then that Shirley MacLaine had written the book Out on a Limb. And I think I kind of had that experience, girl, Loaded out of my body. I don't remember what happened in the car. I, I really feel like I had an out-of-body experience. And all I remember was this voice coming into my head saying, it's fine, go live in the moment. So, you know, basically, I got out of the situation. My friend said I talked him out of it. And he left us alone and went back to the dorm and kind of shrugged it off, laughed it off, partied it off, whatever you do in college. And I forgot about it. Then... I got married and moved out to Midland, Texas, and I gave birth to my firstborn son, and at 10 months, he couldn't roll over in his crib. And as a speech pathologist who had just started a school for profoundly developmentally delayed kids, I knew something wasn't quite right. So I flew home to Houston to the Bluebird Clinic, 
And I did about three months of diagnostics with my son. And at the end of it all, they said to me, your son is going to have a fatal pneumatic reaction at about the age of five. Wow. So why don't you just go back and see if maybe you can give him some great quality of life. And I remember being in the room when it happened. And again, it was that same sort of out-of-body thing. And all I heard was, no, go learn how to love in the moment. And I remembered that scene in New Orleans where I needed to live in the moment. And I think the next step was learning how to love in the moment. Yeah. And so I dropped out of life. I went back to Midland and I dropped out of life and I did five months of physical, occupational, speech, hypotherapy, aqua therapy, you name it with my kid. And... About two weeks before I was going to fly back to Houston, I sat out on my porch, and I was holding my son, and I was staring into his eyes and loving him in the moment, and I looked up at the skies, and I said, okay, God, I'm a cultural Jew. I know how to eat and cook, and I don't know how to pray, but I do know in the Old Testament we've always bargained with you, negotiated, so spare me my son's life, and I'll just sort of wake up the rest of my life, and I'll make a difference in the world. I'll try. And I flew home two weeks later, and it was all a false diagnosis. Wow. So I think at the age of 30, I kind of got purpose. Yes. Sarah, can you tell the listeners, what is it that you do today? I have a consulting firm, and we built socially responsible businesses or community initiatives. Yep. And we do some coaching. Sarah, are you today in your career, where you thought you would be when you were younger? Oh, wow. So I'm going to be 59. So my generation of women, when we were younger, we didn't think about a career. We were programmed to go to college, find a husband, get married, make a baby, boom. Right. That's, I think that's why they call this the baby boomers, make a baby, boom. Right. <laughs> So it never really occurred to me in college other than I did love, I, the first thought was I'm going to be a physician, and, you know, my parents said to me, physician, I don't think so, go find a husband. And then I got all excited. I worked at a summer camp um, in Utica, Mississippi for Jewish kids, and I got all excited about that. And so I said, oh, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a rabbi. My father was like, be a rabbi? Well, never mind, go back and be a doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was so far out. Right. So that's where I ran into a professor who was an early, early pioneer in the field of creative drama, and she was working with, today, what I would consider autistic children. Back then, they were called emotionally disturbed or unable to reach kids. Yep. And she's the one that sort of guided me into this area of speech pathology. So that's where I decided to go ahead and get my degree. And I can't tell you that I was an extraordinarily attentive student yep. in New Orleans, having been locked up in three years of girl boarding school. Right. But, but I did enjoy those classes. And that led me to get my master's degree at the University of Houston, which was an academic struggle for me. They were very inside-of-the-box thinkers about therapeutic interventions, 
And I had come from a creative role play, reach a child any way imaginable. Right. Walk me back a little bit. Given that you were programmed to be a baby boomer, Mm -hmm. do you have a recollection of the first time you had an idea of what it is you wanted to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a mom. I, I can tell you that of anything that has been my guide for the richest, deepest learning, yep. it, it's the role of mother. Yep. I mean, even talking about it, my throat locks up and I get very emotional. To be a parent is the most humbling and, and amazing learning journey anybody can take. Second only to being, I think, um, a daughter. Yep. And, and, and when your parents start aging, um, and, and it's a very different perspective, but a wonderful one. So to me, mom has pretty much been my ultimate and will always, I think, be that ultimate, wow, I got to do that. It was such a gift. Yeah. My career has always found me. And, and I really think it's through that sort of, as woo-woo as it sounds, you know, kind of pact and or negotiation that I had with what I consider to be the higher power. Yep. Starting the school sort of found me after I left the school. Um, because I was a member of the Junior League, I had learned so much about organizational development and branding and marketing and strategic thinking that I started my first consulting firm with um, Sherry Kozel, who was the president of the Junior League at the time. Yep. And we were way ahead of our time in that we were doing trainings for mid-sized companies, other Junior Leagues, Chambers of Commerce, on collaboratives and future thinking and branding and marketing and... I can't tell you that we really were trained for it academically, but in the real world, we were pretty darn great at what we did and raised money and friends and relationships, et cetera. And when you're doing that kind of work, what was your driver? My personal driver, I love watching groups, people find their creative side and merge it with their analytical side in a way that only passion can fuel. Yep. And the more I've been engaging in these kinds of situations, the easier it is for me to walk away from sort of when narcissism and ego takes over the mission. Yep. I I think at the end of the day, Sometimes this world we're living in, which I describe as greed and speed, has taken over a world that I kind of grew up in called grace and pace. So when I got started in my career and I was interfacing with corporations and 501c3 corporations, we all were really growing things based on grace, pace, and mission. Yep. When I went to work for Dynegy, when we tried to buy Enron, I was, in hindsight, 
everything in me was screaming, wow, this, something's not right. This, this, this whole, everything about this is not right. Yep. Unfortunately, you know, I was so excited at the thought of the job that I was going to have, I didn't listen to that voice. What was that job you were going to have that you were so excited for? I was recruited to be the president of the Dynegy Foundation. So when I started, it was, you know, the Dynegy Global Foundation, if you will. Um, within two years, we were trying to buy Enron. <laughs> right. So I was doing due diligence and talking to, you know, the Enron Foundation and quickly began to understand that this this was all passed through money and, you know, there was lots of lots of what I now understand to be leadership that wasn't long-term thinking. It wasn't ever sustainable. Right. The model is not sustainable. You cannot build a city based on 10 corporations being your go-to. Right. Sarah, on a scale of uh, 0 to 10 where zero is a total non-issue and 10 is a big, dark, gloomy shadow, how large a shadow would you say that financial considerations have had over your career path to date? You know, my father always says, you're such a smart woman. I don't know why you just aren't making billions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I like to think that I have you know, a great IQ and a great EQ, money has never really been my primary motivation, ever. Um, after my husband and I left Midland and we ended up in Oklahoma City, and that is where I saw the first HIV-AIDS case in probably all of Oklahoma. And at the same time, my husband's cousin was in Shreveport, Louisiana, dying of the virus. And I saw how people were reacting. So the oil industry had once again gone from doo-dah to doo-doo, which is what took us to Oklahoma City. And it was just time for me to come home. And I found a little bitty ad in the Houston paper for the director of AIDS Foundation Houston. I called my childhood friend Barry Mandel and said, Tell me about this, and he said, "Don't even think about it. Too too much trouble." Yep. Thirteen directors, ten years. Nobody can help him. He got me the job, and I think that was the game-changing career pinnacle. I don't know that I will ever have anything like that again. I walked into a staff of the most committed, passionate. Caring, loving, we're going to get this done no matter what. Humans, I mean, we're all still connected. It's indescribable. And yep. believe me, we weren't making a lot of money. Right. In fact, when I got there, no one in the agency had health care insurance because nobody would insure our employees because of the word AIDS. In right. our title. And one by one, the most unbelievable people started showing up who were really behind the scenes just such great servant leaders. 
they they really were not about having their pictures anywhere. They weren't about all of the society. Certainly, we wanted to raise funds from quote mainstream Houston, but this this group of people that pulled together, and they certainly all know who they are, were doing such admirable acts of kindness. They created the first summer camp for kids with AIDS in the South because our kids couldn't go anywhere. Right. Uh, couldn't They couldn't go to camp. So we were the first summer camp that partnered with Camp for All. Systems were built. Creative thinking was always being used. Some of the most conservative people in the city were donors because they understood it was their employees and their kids. And it really did change the hearts and minds of so many people. Yeah. And why would you say that has disappeared? You know, I think social media has a lot of really wonderful qualities. Information sharing during a flood is a great example. Yep. When there's crisis, it's when, when there's a volcano, when there's an earthquake and people are posting, I'm fine. It's fantastic. But it's also created, much like the selfie generation in all the articles, this very strange, false sense of everybody is perfect. Yep. And we're just not. I hurt, you hurt, you have problems in your house, I have problems, everyone is struggling, not, there is no fantasy going on here that, oh, it's all good, all the time. Yep. I think you back, Sarah, on your career journey to date. Has there been a consistent thread when you, when you think about your family, friends, and colleagues has there been a consistent thread in the kind of advice or counsel that they've sought from you over the years? You know what I'm learning? I think people truly are looking for permission to succeed. People, it seems, I keep getting into the same world of people that have been so beat down and have had so many people tell them all the reasons why they can't. Yep. And I think my gift and those I associate myself with, our gifts are, wait a minute, maybe that can work. Let's, let's look at this. I try very hard to just live in the moment and if I were forced to think back on it and really look at it and analyze it and figure it out, you know, I think people are attracted to that positive spark. I, I do look at life with a big wow. Yep. I, I'm, you know, I, I've, I've always had that wow. I remember the first time I went to visit with his, now my second family in Mexico City, and my friend's mother, Teresa Serrano, is a very, very well-known artist. At the time, she was just beginning her career. And so she asked if I would sit for a portrait, which I have to this day. And so I said, sure, sure, sure. Of course, sitting still was a big effort for me for all that time. 
But she just kept saying, Ay, Sarita, your eyes, they just have such a big wow in them. They're those white lights. Yeah. I, I think I've just, I just love life. I don't take it for granted. Um, I have lost many friends to cancer. I have friends today that are battling cancer. I spent seven years in the world of HIV and AIDS where, wow, whole black book was gone. I've lost family members. I was with my mother five years ago when she died. And I just, I really am grateful to wake up. I yeah. love living. I really do. I feel like you've, you've achieved a very high, high plane in life that I think a lot of people would, be very, would very much aspire to achieve. Yeah, I, I think we all have that ability. Yep. If, if we spend less time worrying about what if and more time just doing. Yep. You know, when I was at Dynagy, Dynagy was in a partnership with Tanner Fitzgerald in New York City when the planes hit the tower. And our traders were on the phone with their traders. Now, I can guarantee you on both sides of that equation, nobody left home that morning with any thought in their mind of anything but going to work. And, you know, people might have been worried about making a t-ball game or what they were going to have for lunch. Or I think that changed a lot of people's lives about, well, I can't worry about tomorrow. It's right here and it's right now. We, we, right? We went to sleep. We woke up and the city was underwater. But Sarah, I think that the what I'm what I'm sensing from you, and what I'm getting from you, and I think that the the challenge in that example you just gave is that people have, you know, these moments of recognition, but you seem to be able to to hold on to that for a long time, and I think a lot of us. We come across those moments, indeed, we experience those moments, but our ability to take that moment and refresh it on a day-in, day-out basis, we, we don't achieve that. Maybe it's because we're set up from a young age with the life goal to make money instead of to make a life. Yes. And so... I find that when I hear my friend's mother is sick, I've become my mother and I can't get to my kitchen quick enough to make some soup and deliver it. Right. I can work while I'm doing that. I can still be on a call, but there's something so fulfilling about focusing on the other. Even when you're building your business. I think so many businesses fail today because they're so focused on the dollar instead of the customer. Sarah, when did you, uh, when did you learn or, or uh, first come across this concept of making a life versus making you know, a dollar? Oh, definitely AIDS Foundation. Yep. Definitely. I, know, I mean, I still... I still struggle to talk about those seven years um, without such deep emotion for what, what it looked like. I mean, it truly was 
living and loving fully in every single moment. And, yep. and that could be tears, and that could be in the most outrageous laughter. I mean, we all laugh. It's amazing. None of us went to jail for sexual harassment because today we'd all been put in prison, <laughs> probably complete outrageous behavior. But no, it's, it's what we had to do. Yep. Every single person who was there went on, I think, to do unbelievable work. Every time I open up my feed and I see a staffer, they're just all doing amazing, amazing things. And I think that's where everybody learns. We would never settle again for doing anything where we were not surrounded by people who allowed us our creative as well as our intellectual whole being. So Sarah, last question here. Knowing what you know today, how would you advise your younger self? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I think the only thing I might have told my younger self is, um, yeah, be a pediatrician. I mean, my kids will tell you I'm a baby fanatic. Uh-huh. I love babies and I love children. Though, I mean, that, that would be about the only thing other than in school, I remember as my generation grew up, you could only be good at one thing. And so my thing was I was a very gifted tennis player and athlete. And even in high school, I remember in art class, my art teacher saying, uh, you probably should stick to tennis. Uh-huh. It was with some work that I was doing with the special needs, special abilities is what I call them, community, that I met my art teacher, Gabby, who is, quote, intellectually, developmentally delayed. And I was going to volunteer at her program where they paint and they take photographs. And Gabby made me sit down and she said, come on, Sarah, paint. And I'm like, I'm not an artist. And she said, no, everyone is an artist. And so I started playing around with, you know, painting quotes. And one day she looked at this thing that I had created, which was black ink coming out of a ketchup bottle and squigglies, and she went, ooh, look, Sarah, it's all hearts like you. Right. You know, all I could see on this page was black and white squiggles, and she said, no, start coloring it in, paint it in. So I did. And sure enough, what started showing up was all these hearts that she could see that I couldn't. And so at the ripe old age of 56 or 57, somebody with, quote, special abilities, special needs, showed me, wow, I'm an artist. Right. Amazing. I think the older I get, the more I realize that all of these labels are depleting the human spirit. Right. Sarah Spear Selber, thank you. Really amazing conversation. <laughs> it's been fun chatting with you. It always is. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gert Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating and especially your review of the show on iTunes would also be hugely helpful and very much appreciated. 
If you think you or someone you know would be a great guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.